Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 13 of the series The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. Welcome back to 1926, one of the most exciting years of the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers' annual list of on-the-cusp stars. When we last spoke some weeks ago, thank you for your patience, I told you all about Mary Astor, and in episode 11, all about Dolores Costello, Sally Long, Edna Marion, Vera Reynolds, and Mary Bryan. Sit back and relax as I hit you with the rest of the Wampus Stars. Remember, they dropped the baby that year of 1926. Janet Gaynor It's hard to grasp just how much of a chance the Wampus were taking when they put Janet Gaynor on their 1926 list. Anyone who knows much of anything about Hollywood history should immediately recognize her name as the first winner of the Academy Award for Best Actress ever. But at the end of 1925, when the Wampi were making their selections, Janet hadn't had any credited roles. She didn't even really want to be a movie star. That dream belonged to her older sister Helen, who later went by Hillary. Their stepfather spotted the talent in only Janet, who is then named Laura Gaynor, with an I, not a Y. And he made it his goal, along with Janet's mother, to get her into the business. So no, Janet didn't have any credits yet, but what she did have was an innate talent, a bunch of parts as an extra, uncredited bit role appearances, a new contract with Fox, and a movie with them slated to come out in February, The Jonestown Flood. She was to play the secondary girl part, along with Florence Gilbert, who is largely forgotten today, and one of our favorite beefcakes, George O'Brien. And the other thing that Janet had going for her was that she was cute. She was about five feet tall, with a round face, a chin dimple, and big old eyes, Janet was born in September 1906, making her just 19 when she was named by the Wampus as one to watch. Washed ashore by the Jonestown Flood, it says in Photoplay's October 1926 issue. Janet Gaynor has made a neat little hit for herself. She caused almost as much damage as the Flood. Now she's getting leading roles in important pictures, as, for instance, the return of Peter Grimm. The return of Peter Grimm, you may recall, originally had Wampus Baby star of 1925, Dwayne Thompson, cast in the role that ended up going to Janet. Peter Grimm wasn't a star maker for Janet, but it was a boost for the still-fledgling performer, even though she collapsed on set from overwork and stress. Fox had been keeping her busy, with five features with them in the first year of her contract. The mid-1920s were an exciting time to join the Fox Film Corporation. Originally based out of New Jersey, in 1926 they had purchased a large plot of land, hundreds of acres, in Hollywood. They were also investing heavily in sound technologies and taking steps to increase their reputation in two key areas, prestige by way of stage and literary adaptations, and youthfulness. Youth in Fox Pictures says a full-page advertisement for the studio in Photoplay's December 1926 issue. Not content with having secured great successes of the stage and the most popular novels and short stories of the world's leading writers, the makers of Fox Pictures have gathered the greatest array of talent ever assembled by one company to portray the roles in these notable photoplays. Established favorites of the screen, of course, but more. Youth! Golden, glorious youth moves through every photoplay that bears the name of Fox. When Fox announced that they were making a film version of the extremely popular stage drama Seventh Heaven, 
Everyone was abuzz about who would play the leading couple, Chico and Diane. Four months every ambitious young actress in Hollywood has been after the part of Diane, said Photoplay. One of those marvelous chances for characterization, a beaten, downtrodden girl of Montmartre who is transformed by love into beauty and courage. A wonderful part. Many a famous name in Hollywood made a screen test for it. The studio's strategy, golden glorious youth over any of those famous names, meant that two relative unknowns were chosen, our girl Janet and Charles Farrell. Charles was 26 years old, tall, terribly handsome, and boy did he know it, and had only had a handful of credited roles. His only film of note was an epic on the high seas called Old Ironsides, 1926. But it still was a bit of a gamble to put these two untested stars in such a high-profile film. Luckily, it paid off. Seventh Heaven was first released as a silent film in May 1927, and then a few months later re-released with a soundtrack and sound effects. It was a huge hit. Janet and Charles were breakout stars. People could not get enough of them, together or apart, but hey, particularly together. About the premiere of Seventh Heaven, Pitcher Play reported in its August 1927 issue that Janet was the belle of the ball, and that she and Charlie Farrell were met with cheers and applause. It went on to say, there have been rumors of their engagement, but really their friendship seems more like a brother-and-sister affair. At any rate, it is one of the most charming in Hollywood. At first, her reaction to Janet was heavily focused on just how wowed everyone was by her talent. Pitcher Play called her the greatest discovery of the season, and called her a natural-born actress. The film Spectator talked of her divine gift— and Photoplay called her the greatest young screen success of recent years. It's funny, not ha-ha funny, that Fox was Olive Borden's studio at this time as well. You may remember that Olive was fighting with Fox to let her appear in more serious films, ones that didn't parade her around in just a negligee. It wasn't a case of being at the wrong studio for that, as evidenced by the work that Janet was being given. In Seventh Heaven, she played a young sex worker falling in love despite her desperate situation and living under the specter of the First World War. In the complex drama Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, 1927, she played a wife whose husband, played by George O'Brien, plans her murder, and paired again with Charles Farrell in Street Angel, 1928, she played a woman on the run from the law with a past she can't escape. Complicated characters, high-stakes drama, Fox was doing it, and it was Janet that they trusted with those roles. They had even announced Olive for the role that went to Janet in Sunrise, which of course must have stung, but it's difficult to argue with the results. In 1929, the first-ever Academy Awards were presented. That first year, performers were nominated not just for one single picture, but any of their films from 1927 and 1928 would have been eligible. Janet became the first-ever Best Actress winner for her string of successes, Seventh Heaven, Sunrise, and Street Angel. She's a trivia fact, baby! But really, Janet was just getting started. She overcome any early sound hiccups and landed on the Quigley Top Money-Making Stars poll for four years straight starting in 1930, getting the number one spot in 1931. Charles Farrell was number two that year. Their on-screen partnership was extremely popular. They appeared eventually in over 12 films together and their chemistry was out of this world. Plenty of people then and now have wondered about what was really going on behind the scenes. Well, uh, Janet said in 1976 that they were indeed lovers. They were also best friends, and they also had very different goals in life. For one thing, somewhat ironically given the heights of her success, Janet basically always had one foot out the door as far as her career went. The idea of retiring to a quiet life really appealed to her, 
and she simply did not buy into the glamour of Hollywood. Charlie was a big puppy dog type, outdoorsy and sociable, and he liked going to Hollywood parties. He wanted people to like him. He was more than a bit of a fuckboy, but he was very cute. So, you know, pluses and minuses. We loved each other more than we were in love, Janet said. She also claimed that when she married for the first time, on the heels of completing Sunnyside Up together in 1929, that she did so to finally break free of Charlie. That first marriage didn't last long, and when Janet married again, it was to costume designer Adrian in 1939, in what is widely believed to have been a lavender marriage. That Adrian was gay was an open secret in Hollywood, and Janet was likely bisexual. Their marriage was one built on deep trust, genuine friendship, and a mutual desire to have a family. They had a son, and they were together until Adrian's death in 1959. Wait a minute! Why do you think Janet was bi? I'm not out here doing baseless speculation. That has never been my style. Of course, I have no proof. But she did have a very, very well-documented friendship with the gorgeous, pretty openly gay Margaret Lindsay, then included a cross-country road trip and a cruise, which seems to have ended rather abruptly when she began a well-documented long-term friendship with Mary Martin. Actor Bob Cummings is quoted as saying, Janet Gaynor's husband was Adrian, but her wife was Mary Martin. Take from that what you will. I am not in charge of whatever conclusion you come to. Anyway, there is no question at all about the Wampus's gamble on Janet Gaynor paying off. Before her retirement in the late 1930s, she had left her home studio of roughly a decade, Fox, and had gone on to star in one of her most iconic films, 1937's A Star is Born. Fitting that it should be one of the performances that she is best remembered for today, as Janet Gaynor was a star of the highest order. Dolores Del Rio A Mexican find! reads Pitcher Plays, December 1925 edition. The discovery of the month is a Mexican society girl, Senora Dolores del Rio, and her first appearance in a second lead in Joanna with a Million, with Dorothy McHale, is going to be watched very closely in studio circles. Edwin Carew, the director, is the Columbus who discovered her. Aside from the implication that Columbus discovered anything at all, the picture play snippet is pretty accurate. Dolores was born into affluence in 1904, and despite her family losing much of its wealth in the 19-teens, she was raised carefully and with refinement. She became a dancer in her teens, well regarded for her elegance. In 1921, a few months shy of her 17th birthday, Dolores married Jaime del Rio, who was in his 30s and from a similarly classy family, his still had some money. Fast forward to early 1925, however, and the couple found themselves in dire financial straits. A stroke of luck that sounds ripped from one of the films she would eventually make, Dolores was indeed introduced to First National's Edwin Carew, who was on his honeymoon in Mexico. He immediately saw that this stunning, I mean, she truly was a knockout, that this stunning woman needed to be in Hollywood. It really didn't take much convincing. Dolores had loved performing, and her husband saw this as an end to their money troubles. Those troubles, by the way, were largely ignored in Dolores's publicity. The focus was heavily on her aristocratic roots, rather than implying she had struggled much at all. The Exhibitor's Trade Review called her a wealthy and beautiful Mexican. They never skipped mentioning her nationality. Del Rio is not only beautiful, but she is rich, said Photoplay. 
Motion Picture News dubbed her the Mexican heiress, and the Exhibitor's Herald wrote, She is said to be one of Mexico's richest daughters. All of this was very strategic, to position Dolores firmly on a pedestal, lest anyone make racist assumptions about the type of woman that she was. Harmful stereotypes about Mexicans already had a strong foothold in silent-era Hollywood. In fact, depictions of Latinos as despicable characters had become so common, so perverse and pervasive, that in 1922, the Mexican government briefly banned Hollywood films. After much lobbying for more respect, the Hayes office finally agreed to tone down the overt racism. However, many tropes continued. One of those tropes, of course, was the Latin lover persona, popularized by Rudolph Valentino, who was Italian, and an actual distant cousin of Dolores's, Ramon Navarro. By the time Dolores came on the scene in late 1925, they did imply that she was a female Latin lover, but they could have publicized her as a fiery party girl. This would have paired nicely with the expectations of audiences who already had a half-formed, bigoted idea in their heads about passionate, highly sexualized, morally suspect women from south of the border. But instead, likely because of Edwin Grew's vested interest in her, Dolores's own strong personality, and this gem of a true backstory that they could embellish, Dolores was placed on this very classy pedestal. That's not to say, however, that the coverage surrounding her didn't dip a toe into some pretty fetishizing pools. She was dubbed as exotic, constantly draped in priceless Spanish lace for photo shoots. And when she stepped, it was sinuously, according to Photoplay. She was othered by the fan magazines, but it was all part of her successful marketing. Dolores's first full year in pictures went great. Not only was she named a Wampus star, but under personal contract to Edwin, she did three pictures that he directed and was loaned out to do two others, including her first big hit, What Price Glory, directed by Raoul Walsh. That film proved that she was a star, and the following year in 1927, Resurrection proved that she was the real deal. Intelligently and stirringly presented, says Photoplay's review of the now-lost film, it introduces Dolores Del Rio as one of our greatest actresses. This was the fourth out of seven collaborations with Edwin, her discoverer and mentor. He was also, according to biographer David Ramone, her tormentor. Edwin was obsessed with Dolores and controlled every aspect of her career. What roles she accepted, what costumes she wore, what events she attended. She always denied reciprocating his romantic feelings towards her. But when she divorced her first husband in 1928, Edwin decided to divorce his wife, the one he was on a honeymoon with when he met Dolores, with the full intentions of marrying Dolores and becoming a Hollywood power couple. Using the personal contract that she had with him, Edwin stalked and harassed her, pressuring her to become his bride. He went so far as to plant stories about their implied romance in the fan magazines. Motion Picture Classic featured two floating heads flanking a photo of Dolores, one of the ditched Jaime Del Rio and one of the silver-haired Edwin. The lowdown on divorce, it says. It doesn't outright say that there's a new romance, but why else put Edwin there at all? Indeed, nearly every mention of Dolores's divorce also mentioned Edwin in some capacity, and there were reports of a cruise together and of a proposed duel between her director and her estranged husband. Before any such nonsense could occur, just six months after Dolores filed for divorce, before it was even totally finalized, Jaime died from blood poisoning, officially, in Germany. So Dolores would have been free to marry Edwin if she had any interest in doing such a thing, 
but instead she got the hell out of there. She signed a contract with United Artists, negotiating $9,000 a week, which, like, cha-ching, freeing herself from Edwin's control and pissing him off royally in the process. He sued her. It was settled out of court, and then two never spoke again. She was free of Edwin's control, and without his prized jewel, his career suffered. Dolores reportedly felt considerable guilt about that, and about her first husband's sudden death. This may have contributed to a health crisis shortly after her second marriage to art director Cedric Gibbons in 1930. It was officially a kidney infection, but it was almost certainly exacerbated by the stress and grief she felt about how the last couple of years had gone down. After making The Bad One in 1930, she was off screen until 1932's Girl of the Rio. When she made her return, she was as popular as ever. Although, as was the case during the silent era, too, she was usually relegated to foreign or otherwise othered characters. Dolores rarely played Mexican roles, but her accent was used as a stand-in for all kinds of so-called exotic backgrounds. French, Russian, Polynesian, like in the pre-code hit Bird of Paradise, 1932. And despite her elegant, upper-crust image, she was simultaneously cast in sex symbol roles and or as a clothes horse, there for more decoration than for performance. Not exactly fulfilling stuff. It's not surprising that after her marriage to the image-conscious Cedric cooled off in the late 1930s, that she fell in love with the temperamental but brilliant Orson Welles. Ten years her junior, Orson had been crushing on Dolores since Bird of Paradise. By the time they began an affair, Dolores's career was in a tailspin. There was a string of flops, a weak accusation that she was a communist, and the general consensus that she was one to lump in with the box office poison crew. She is sometimes incorrectly named as one on that infamous 1938 list, but she wasn't. <laughs> Mating Orson felt like an artistic awakening for Dolores, and she looked forward to building a creative relationship with him, based on more even ground than the one that she had with the paternalistic Edwin Carew. It helped that she was in love with Orson. But there were two things wrong. One, the sole film that they did together was 1943's Journey into Fear. Despite being the creative force behind the picture, producing, co-writing the screenplay, and unofficially directing, RKL fired Orson during post-production and heavily edited the film without his involvement. Dolores's role was greatly reduced in the final cut. The second problem was that Orson couldn't keep his dick in his pants. Despite being infatuated with Dolores long after she dumped him, Orson was a tramp, and Dolores wasn't about to put up with that kind of fuckery, thank you very much. Seeing the state of her Hollywood career, and wanting to get away from the disaster that was her love life, Dolores returned to Mexico. Far from retiring quietly, she would go on to have an epic new chapter in Mexican cinema. She made her final on-screen appearance in 1978. Dolores Del Rio, called the most beautiful woman in the world, also devoted much of her life to philanthropy and being a champion of Mexican art and culture. She was, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the brightest stars ever selected by the Wampus. Marceline Day In 1924, Marceline Day, then all of 16 years old, joined her older sister Alice on the Senate lot. After appearing in a slew of comedy shorts, she landed an exciting supporting role in The Splendid Road. Released in late 1925, just before the announcement of the Wampus List and coinciding with a short-term First National contract, Marceline got special notice for her part. Pretty Marceline Day, sister of Senate's Alice, looms large in her dainty way as a promising starlet, 
it said in Screenland. It was common enough during those days to do several short-term stints at different studios, and along with the aforementioned Senate and First National, Marceline also spent time at Universal and MGM, as well as freelancing. This meant that she was busy, a plus, but also, a negative, that she didn't have anyone molding her for success. Now, I'd love to tell you a bit more information about her contract with MGM, for example. But, uh, Marceline said in May 1926 that I can't. Marceline Day, actress, has obtained a temporary injunction against Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, restraining that company from publishing the fact that she is under contract with them. She recently became of age and has declared her contract void. Marceline actually got over the dispute and re-signed her later that year, motivated in part by her getting the attention of the Old Movie Lady podcast's resident middle-aged Lothario, John Barrymore. If she was good enough for him, she was good enough for MGM. Despite being now 18, Pitcher Play referred to her as the prettiest of the embryo actresses. So, you know, just the type of leading lady Jack liked. He picked her to appear opposite him in 1927's The Beloved Rogue. It was great for her profile and helped that year become the best of her career, though her most interesting work in 1927 was the horror film London After Midnight. Today, London After Midnight is one of the most sought-after lost films of the silent era. Directed by Todd Browning and starring Lon Chaney, with Marceline as the leading lady, it was a big hit for MGM. Sadly, only production stills and an original script survived after the last known print of the film was lost in a fire at the MGM lot in the 1960s. The film featured the undead, vampires, hypnotism, and the Babadook, I mean, the man in the beaver hat. That same year, Marceline also appeared opposite Ramon Navarro in The Road to Romance, William Desmond in Red Clay, and in the surprisingly popular B-comedy, Rookies. She wasn't yet a star, though MGM had plans for her in 1928, mostly recreating her 1927 successes, like a de facto sequel to Rookies called The Detectives, and another, also lucrative, Lon Chaney picture, The Big City. One of the most original choice of part for her was opposite Buster Keaton in The Cameraman, but that would prove to be the last MGM film she did during this period. Dropped like a hot potato, according to Motion Picture Classic, MGM decided to push Anita Page instead of her. Marceline went back to freelancing and short-term deals with different studios. It wouldn't be an inherently bad career move, except that the studios she worked with varied wildly in quality. Fox and Paramount? Promising. FBO and Columbia? Eh. Maybe if Marceline had had a stronger persona, she could have landed more memorable roles at higher-end studios. Instead, she basically just played the girl parts. Not a flapper with a big personality, not a sexy woman of the world, or an elegant, tragic heroine. Instead, she played, if the leading lady, parts just about anyone could play. Or, as in the case of The Wild Party, 1929, a prudish and unsympathetic supporting character, as per Pitcher Play's assessment. By that year, seeing the new influx of talent showing up in talkies and recognizing that she was going to need to do something to get noticed, Marceline lobbied for the lead in The Jazz Age. Marceline Day shows Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer just the sort of picture they ought to have had her in all these years, said Motion Picture Magazine in their April 1929 edition. Marceline steps out as an entirely shameless but altogether attractive red-hot mama who makes much whoopee with Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Too little too late, unfortunately, because as fun and sassy as her role may have been, the film itself failed to win over audiences. Marceline kept on trucking for a few more years, but where she used to have a mix in the prestige of the companies that she worked for, soon she was poverty row exclusive. Never reaching the heights predicted for her, Marceline Day made her final film in 1933. 
Joyce Compton. If Marceline Day had trouble because her persona was too ill-defined, Joyce Compton had the opposite problem. But before she was typecast, much to her chagrin as a dumb blonde, let's backtrack a smidge. Born in Kentucky in January 1907, Joyce went to Hollywood with her devoted parents in 1925. Her father Henry was an ambitious man, always looking to strike oil. Her mother, Golden, great name, wanted to live the Hollywood life vicariously through beautiful Joyce. It sounds more than a bit like Mary Astor's family background, but luckily the Comptons were a happier little unit. They were devout Christians and considered themselves to be a real team. When Joyce arrived in California, she entered a beauty contest at the Ambassador Hotel and won. Then she did some extra work for a while before signing with First National. Yet another Cinderella was the headline in Picture Play's 1926 issue. The great majority of extras, unfortunately, are destined, according to current beliefs in Hollywood, to remain just extras. The chosen few? Well, maybe, says the film Metropolis, doubtfully shaking its head. Maybe they will have the good fortune of Joyce Compton. It isn't a new story, of course, that a very smart-looking young girl of blonde persuasion should walk into a casting director's office and win a five-year contract with hardly so much of the batting of a golden eyelash. Nevertheless, it is still a novel one, and Joyce Compton, who recently performed the feat, is being appropriately envied by the atmosphere's sisterhood. Strike anyone else's bit snide? as if it's implying that there was a casting couch situation going on. I'm not suggesting that there was in Joyce's case, although that was very common. I'm also not suggesting that the victims of the casting couch weren't just to that. Victims. But yeah, a hint of cynicism from picture play. It probably didn't help Joyce's case when, despite the first national contract, a handful of small 1925 roles, and her appearance on the Wampus list, she only made one film in 1926. First National let her go at their earliest convenience. Five years is fundamentally meaningless in contract terms, and poor Joyce was set adrift. The next couple of years weren't much better, and it was starting to look like Joyce's career was going to sputter out before it ever took off, but somewhat remarkably given how it has been credited with the downfall of so many actors— talking films spelt the first real win of Joyce's career. She appeared in two sound pictures with her close friend Clara Bow, The Wild Party, which as I mentioned also featured Marceline Day, and Dangerous Curves, both in 1929. Excelling in these roles, Joyce finally caught the attention of Fox. Finally, a studio to call home! They immediately set to work trying to pigeonhole Joyce into a more serious type. This included dyeing her blonde hair red and putting her, while still in featured supporting roles, in more dramatic pictures. Fox, having some issues with their top star Janet Gaynor, hinted in the press that Joyce might take her place in an on-screen pairing with Charles Farrell, but it seems to have been a ploy just to make Janet worried rather than a real plan to make a star out of Joyce. Once again, Joyce's contract was not renewed. And, once again, you really couldn't have blamed her if she decided there and then to call it quits. But Joyce was a trooper, and the breadwinner for herself and her parents. Quitting wasn't really much of an option, but neither was allowing herself once again to be at the whims of a studio. Joyce was a pragmatist. Though she may have liked doing more serious roles, she knew that where she shone was as a bubbly blonde. She returned to the lighter shade, and as a freelancer, worked her ass off, bringing sparkle to anything and everything she could. Over the years, Joyce became known as a fantastic and reliable character actress, someone that you could bring onto a project when you needed a dumb blonde, yes, but a dumb blonde with something special. Two of her best-known performances, to me anyway, are in The Awful Truth, 1937, where she plays a nightclub singer whose dress keeps flying up every time she sings Gone with the Wind, and in Christmas in Connecticut, where she plays a love-struck nurse who really sets the whole plot in motion. 
She also appeared in Mildred Pierce, Sorry Wrong Number, Imitation of Life, and dozens more films. Like all great character actors, once you recognize her face, you'll start seeing her everywhere. But none of this was actually fulfilling for Joyce. This was a job, not a calling. And she knew that she was smarter, more serious, and had more depth than the character she played. In the 1950s, after the death of her beloved mother, though Joyce continued to make the odd appearance on television, she also started a brand new career in nursing. She spent the rest of her working life taking care of others, proving without a shadow of a doubt that she was far more than just a dumb blonde. Late in her life, she connected with author Michael G. Anchorage to share her story. So big, big, big credit to him for preserving her legacy and being the primary resource for this section. I really recommend looking up his work and you'll get a much fuller picture of her life than I'm able to provide in this short section. The Wampus may not have accurately predicted Joyce Compton's level of stardom, but I doubt even they could have guessed the sheer number of films and people that she would impact. Faye Ray. Well, let's get it out of the way immediately that yes, Faye Ray was in King Freakin' Kong, and even if she never did anything else in her career, that would have cemented her Hollywood legacy. But of course, there's more. Faye landed in Hollywood by way of, as a child anyway, Canada. Born circa 1907, the Ray family moved her to the United States in 1911. But we Canadians have always liked to take credit even if she did end up in Utah. When she was just 14, her mother allowed her to be escorted to California by her sister's fiancé, William Bill Mortensen. And naturally, if that sets off some alarm bells for you, you are wiser than Faye's mother. He really wasn't interested in her sister. Bill, a decade her senior, was interested in Faye. It was basically a plot to get her away from the protection of her family. And sadly, he would be the first in a long line of creeps and assholes that Faye would have to deal with throughout her life. Once in Hollywood, Bill got her a job as an extra working for director Ferdinand Pinney Earl, and also arranged for Faye to live at the Earl's house. She had her own room a room that the 40-something married man Ferdinand tried to break into during the night. Poor Faye had to barricade her bedroom door with furniture, and the incident was laughed off by Ferdinand as a bit of saucy fun. Bill was still there, being more than a bit inappropriate, despite essentially being her guardian. She spent about a year staying with numerous families, attending high school, being groomed by Bill on the weekends, and trying to get extra work where she could. Eventually becoming a well-regarded Hollywood glamour photographer, Bill took Faye's earliest photographs, some of which she sent home to her mother. Mama, scandalized and fearing the worst, headed straight to California and finally put a stop to Bill's special interest in the by then 15-year-old Faye. Faye, for her part, wrote later that she essentially didn't have one sweet clue what sex really was at that age, but that at least Bill never crossed a physical line. So Bill was out of her life, thank God, but the acting bug wasn't. After some uncredited roles in shorts, she landed her very first feature-length picture, 1925's The Coast Patrol, an independent, it didn't do much, and her very first contracts, first with Hal Roach, and then just as the Wampus were making their selections with Universal. She was there doing mostly westerns until 1927, when she convinced Paul Coner, remember Paul? He was in love with Mary Philbin, to help her get out of her contract early. She did this to be free to sign with celebrity pictures to do Eric von Stroheim's The Wedding March. You can add Eric to the list of creeps and assholes, as when the still-teenaged Faye got a bit of a crush on him, he opted to get physical without consent. Faye maintained a reverence for his artistry and was excited for her first leading role in what was supposed to be an epic film. Her 
Production of the wedding march was out of control, however. The budget ballooned, and filming took several months. By then, Paramount had taken over distribution for the film, and with that, not only control over the wedding march, but Faye's contract as well. They demanded a stop to filming, and sliced the film into two. Part one was a box office failure. Part two was never even released in North America. Faye didn't really have time to mourn what was supposed to be her grand dramatic breakthrough, as Paramount quickly put her to work before it was even released, doing, among others, two pictures in 1928 with Gary Cooper. The first, Legion of the Condemned, brought screenwriter John Monk Saunders into her life, and during filming of the second, The First Kiss, she married him. John was ten years older than her, a pathological philanderer and an alcoholic who experienced extreme depression, who was at the time of their marriage having an affair with Jesse Lasky's wife, Bessie. Shortly after she married, some of the photos that Bill Mortensen took of Faye when she was just 14 and 15 years old threatened to resurface. In fact, one relatively tame photo did resurface, in Motion Picture Magazine's August 1928 issue, in a piece officially about Bill called Souls in Plaster, referencing his mask-making as well as his photography. It really tells the story of him picking Faye up in Utah and taking her to California on his motorcycle. It isn't presented too scandalously, but the implication is definitely there. Fay Ray was unchaperoned on a road trip with a man, and he took photographs of her in just a shawl. Paramount came to the rescue, orchestrating agreements from the other fan magazines not to touch the story, even getting Bill to recount a version of events that made everything sound as innocent as possible. Never mind, of course, that as far as Fay's involvement is concerned, she was completely innocent. If the full story had emerged, however, it easily could have meant the end of her career. But of course, those movies with Gary Cooper had made money, and by this point, Faye was getting about 500 fan letters a week. Paramount wanted her to survive this. Scandal avoided, Faye's progress at Paramount continued. She wasn't carrying films on her own, but she transitioned to sound productions pretty seamlessly, and was a familiar face in all the fan magazines, often with plays on her name. The Radiant Morning, anyone? The early 1930s saw Paramount and the other studios tightening their belts with the onset of the Great Depression. And after a series of loan outs to less prestigious studios, they did release Faye from her contract in 1931. Up to this point, most of her work had been as not terribly dynamic, though certainly lovely, leading ladies in dramas. Somewhat surprisingly, this would mark a shift in Faye's career that became her legacy, for better or for worse. She became a scream queen. Dr. X, 1932. The Most Dangerous Game, 1932. The Mystery of the Wax Museum, 1933. And The Vampire Bat, 1933. And, most crucially... King Kong. In fact, Kong had begun production, a lengthy one given the special effects needed, before her first slew of scary pictures. But rumors had it that it would be huge and scary, like Kong himself, which helped put her at the top of the casting lists for the other productions. Hollywood and Broadway Movies magazine wrote, in a piece called Fay Ray's Chamber of Horrors in May 1933, that Faye seems to have a penchant for horror pictures, and beyond a doubt she is the most capable actress we know of for the exacting role of a young woman reacting to fear and the menace of horror. But it was, of course, King Kong that was the most important, the most legendary. In it, Faye played Anne, the human object of the giant gorilla Kong's obsession and affection. The central figure is King Kong, said the International Photographer's March 1933 issue. A tremendous ape, so large that when Fay Ray is held in one of his huge paws, she looks like a very tiny doll. 
Kong was a hit, though its enduring legacy would have been impossible to predict. And though Faye felt that ultimately she was typecast as a scream queen post-Kong, that wasn't the case immediately after its release anyway. She was extremely busy doing a variety of dramas, romantic comedies, and the like in the year following. And she would have done more as 20th Century's Daryl Zanuck had several projects slated for her, which he promptly cancelled when she rejected his advances. Creeps and assholes, you know? She did do a few more horror movies, but really, B-movies generally was where she found herself again and again. Faye's marriage to John, with whom she shared a daughter, was troubled and all over by 1939. He died by suicide the next year. She married for the second time, much more happily, to writer Robert Riskin, and retired from films in the early 40s to raise her children. After Robert suffered a stroke, Faye resumed her career about a decade later to support the family and made her final screen appearance in 1980. The legacy of King Kong followed her around for the rest of her career, though she never returned to those Empire State Building heights. Faye Ray was undoubtedly a star. Not as big as some of her 1926 Wampus Baby peers, but one whose name would be forever linked with one of the best-remembered and most influential films of the era. Sally O'Neill Sally O'Neill, that sweet sprite of Ireland whose name was Chotsey Noonan until some idiot changed it, got a five-year contract with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer for being a good little actress. Hilariously reported photoplay in their February 1927 issue. That was a year after being named a Wampus star. Sally whose original name was Virginia Noonan, but who did indeed go by the excellent nickname Chotsey while performing on vaudeville, was born in October 1907. Most places say 1908, but that is based on a misunderstanding of the 1910 census. Anyway, she made her on-screen debut in 1925 in the short Yes, Yes, Nanette, under the name Sue O'Neill. Sometimes she was credited even as Sue Bugs O'Neill. Occasionally O'Neill had two L's. Faithful listeners will already be worried as name inconsistencies can spell trouble around these parts. She was credited as both Sue and Sally well into 1926, even after landing her big breakout role in Sally, Irene, and Mary. She played Mary, and fellow 1926 pick Joan Crawford played Irene, with Constance Bennett as Sally, if you're keeping notes. As far as breaks go, it was alright. It didn't make her a star. She was sharing the spotlight, after all, though it should be noted that Joan was similarly unknown, and Constance was just gaining traction. But it did get Sally some attention. Her next important role was in Mike, directed by Marshall Nealon, who was credited with her discovery. Listen to this account of how he made that discovery, as recounted in Screenland, and try not to shudder out of your skin. She was dancing with a high school friend one night at the Ambassador Hotel, and cogitating on the next day's problems in algebra, as any sixteen-year-old girl with a weakness in mathematics might, when Marshall Nealon saw her. Nealon had been worrying for days for his girl character in Mike, he wanted a piquant 16-year-old flapper with laughing eyes, a lot of vivacity, and an unsophistication that doesn't seem quite the style these days. And Sally, dancing, caught his eye. And what's more, she held it. Now, as we established, no, she wasn't actually 16. And hey, given that she had been performing on stage already, it seems likely that no, she didn't actually have algebra in the morning. But the insistence on playing up her schoolgirlness, and the idea that old Mickey Nealon, who was like 34 years old, was creeping through the ambassador hunting for the perfect teen, is pretty disturbing. Mike was released on the heels of Sally's inclusion on the Wampus list, and it looked like their predictions might come true. She did end up doing quite a few shorts that year, but also signed a five-year contract with MGM and appeared in 1926's Battling Buster with Buster Keaton and some other features in second lead roles, so things were, well, actually pretty uneven. Here's another girl who was plunged into prominence before she was ready to cope with it, 
says Motion Picture Magazine in their November 1926 issue. Being saucy and piquant are her chief talents now, but time may change all that. So basically, your shtick is cute now, but we don't think you've got the chops long term. And, you know, she didn't. Let's consider the case of Sally O'Neill, it said in Photoplay's December 1927 issue. Her pictures for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer made money, but Sally's temperament around the studio was something else again. Came the time for the company to renew Sally's contract. The officials gave Sally the surprise of her still young life by allowing her to depart without an argument. That's a funny way to say she got fired for a bad attitude. Tiffany Stahl Productions picked her up, but wowza was that ever a step down. Her career never regained that bit of promise that MGM afforded her early on. You can blame the advent of sound if you wish, but the writing was already on the wall. She was still working plenty, just in B-grade movies or in smaller and smaller roles. In 1930, she filed for bankruptcy, not just because her income had diminished considerably, but also because she was funding her brother's criminal defense after he was arrested for burglary. It could have come across as naive or too willing to hang out with unsavory types, but her loyalty seemed to appeal to audiences. 1931's The Brat looked like it might finally be what got Sally on the map. Sally's back, declared Motion Pictures October issue that year. Stop wondering what's become of Sally, demanded Screenland in that November. She's doing nicely, thank you, after a knock-down battle against Kid Destiny. But Kid Destiny wasn't so easily beat. Sally didn't make another on-screen appearance until 1933, and it was a forgettable short. She kept at it, uneventfully, until 1937, never really getting much of anywhere. Needless to say, the Wampus Boys and their predictions were no match for Kid Destiny either. Before I leave you, there must be some listener screaming into the void, You forgot Joan Crawford! I certainly did not. Lucille Lesser and I will be here next week, ready to shake things up. In the meantime, don't forget to follow The Old Movie Lady on Instagram and TikTok, to email any questions you may have to theoldmovielady at gmail.com, and if you've been enjoying the show, please leave a review or a rating. And don't forget to tell all your friends. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl.